And if you will remain standing and open your Bibles now to Revelation chapter 2. I told you last week that I was sad to leave behind the messages to the seven churches. We've covered each of the seven messages, and I thought it would be good for us uh, to, to kind of look at a, a summary or the gist of what the Lord is saying to His church universal through these seven messages. Obviously, the reading of Scripture this morning is going to be lengthier than normal. If for uh, any certain reason you're unable to stand that whole amount of time, uh, you can feel free to sit down. But hear now God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word, beginning in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write, The words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, The words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, 
and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation, unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you... I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces. Even I myself have received authority, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot out his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown, the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I, had, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. You may be seated. Perhaps you've heard the relationship between the Old and the New Testament described as the New Testament being in the Old concealed and the Old Testament being in the New revealed. Well, this is very true and it's a very helpful guide to understanding the Bible as a whole. As we read the Old Testament, we find the New Testament contained in it in types, copies, and shadows. And what we find when we read the New Testament is those Old Testament types, copies, and shadows being revealed and being fulfilled. And in this way, the New Testament often portrays the people of God as undergoing another exodus. Why? Because the Old Testament exodus was a type, a copy, a shadow of the end time exodus of God's people. And this means that the Old Testament exodus was a paradigm event which demonstrated what will occur for the people of God in the New Testament era. We've already seen exodus imagery in the book of Revelation, and we will continue to run into it throughout the book. And what I'd like to do this morning is to look at one chapter in the book of Revelation that heavily uses the Exodus imagery, and that chapter, here for just a moment, being Revelation chapter 12. Now, for the sake of our time, I won't read the whole chapter, but let's look at a few select verses. Now, beginning in verse 1, we read, And a great sign appeared in heaven, A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Okay, so who is this woman? Well, the imagery of sun, moon, and twelve stars is used in Genesis chapter 37, verse 9, when Joseph had a dream. And when he tells that dream to his brothers, he says, Behold... I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, later in Genesis, we see that Joseph's father, the sun, his mother, the moon, and his eleven brothers, the eleven stars, go to Egypt 
and bow down to him, the twelfth star. And so this imagery in the book of Revelation uh, uh, here in chapter 12 is a description of Israel. This is, these are uh, from whom Israel came. Jacob is Israel. His sons are Israel. Their offspring is Israel. And so this imagery then is describing Israel, the people of God, the Old Testament church. Now, it's not difficult to see that the the child whom the woman is pregnant with, whom Israel is pregnant with, is Jesus, since in verse 5, the child is one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. And in verses 3 and 4, John sees another sign in heaven, this one of a dragon who stood before the pregnant woman so that he could devour the child once she gave birth to him. Now, what does that sound like? Well, it sounds an awful lot like Herod trying to put to death all the male children in Bethlehem in an attempt to put Jesus to death. And that very thing is actually foreshadowed in the Old Testament when Pharaoh, at the beginning of Exodus, tries to kill all of the male children of Israel. And so that, beloved, is the type, the copy, the shadow that points forward to Christ. And so you can begin to see how the scripture presents the shadow in the Old Testament and the reality in the New Testament. Of course, uh, the devil sought all throughout his ministry to put Jesus to death. But let's continue on for just a moment. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 5, the child, Christ, was caught up to God and to his throne. And this, of course, refers to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. And what happens after Christ accomplishes redemption and ascends up to heaven? Well, Revelation 12 tells us that the dragon, verse 9, verse 9 tells us the dragon is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan. And we learn that he is thrown down to the earth where he and his angels, verse 13, pursue the woman into the wilderness to make war with her. But the Lord protects her, verse 14, giving her the two wings of the eagle to fly away from the serpent to a place in the wilderness where she's going to be nourished by the Lord. And this should remind you of the Old Testament exodus, where after the Lord redeems Israel from Egypt, he brings her into the wilderness where she is pursued by Pharaoh and his armies. In fact, the Lord says to Israel in Exodus 19 verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how, listen, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. And so the Lord protected her, and he also nourished her in the wilderness. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 14 through 16, describes Israel in the wilderness like this. The Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness, with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground, Where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you 
to do you good in the end. And so there we see the Lord's nourishing care of Israel during her time in the wilderness. Okay, so why have I taken so much time to tell you about Revelation 12 and all of its allusions to the exodus of Israel? Well, the exodus from Egypt, and specifically the wilderness journey of Israel, is a foreshadowing of the time of tribulation that the church experiences prior to Christ's return to bring us into the new heavens and the new earth. You see, we are currently, beloved, being led by Christ through the wilderness of this world to the promised land of heaven. The time of wilderness for the church is the time of tribulation that the book of Revelation is talking about. How did Deuteronomy 8.16 describe the wilderness? Well, it said that the Lord used that time to humble them and to test them, to do them good in the end. Deuteronomy 8.3 is also helpful in describing the purpose of the wilderness. It says, and he humbled you. And let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. And so the wilderness is a place where the Lord disciplines us as sons, training us up to know that we do not live by bread so much as we live by every word of the Lord's. Beloved, the messages to the seven churches have been portraying how Christ nourishes us In our wilderness tribulation, Christ is present amongst his lampstand churches, disciplining her, rebuking her, encouraging her, nourishing her, all for the purpose of patiently enduring the testing of the wilderness tribulation so that they might be prepared To enter into the promised land of heaven. That's what these seven messages to the churches have been all about. That really is what the whole letter of Revelation is all about. God through Christ has won the victory. And he is now leading the church through the wilderness. Unto the promised land. What I would like to do is go over the highlights that we have seen in these messages in order to observe how it defines this time of tribulation and what our attitude and behavior should be towards it. As we have moved through each of the messages to the seven churches, we have seen the church encountering tribulation Not necessarily all of them in the same way. 
The enemy, the dragon, does not wage war against the church in just one way. What we have seen and what we will continue to see throughout the book of Revelation is that the dragon wages war in three basic ways. Through persecution, through deception, and through seduction. Now the dragon uses the beast to persecute. He uses the false prophet to deceive. And the harlot city Babylon to seduce. Those are all images we've discussed in the past, but which we'll see more of throughout our series. Now each of the churches faced at least one of these basic forms of tribulation from the enemy. Some of them face a combination of these forms of tribulation. But these three define what the tribulation looks like as the church wanders in the wilderness prior to entering into the promised land of heaven. And so let's take a look at the different churches, observing the the types of tribulation that they faced as they encountered the enemy. Now, all three of these forms of persecution are probably present together in every culture. But often, one of them is more prominent than the others in certain places, in in certain ages. Let's begin with persecution. You see, persecution is all about power. Satan, who is the dragon, the ancient serpent, gains and enforces its power in a very, very ugly way. Hence, the agent of the dragon that enforce, the agent of the dragon that enforces persecution is the beast. And so persecution is a weapon used by the beast as he seeks to be worshipped. And he seeks this through force, through fear, through intimidation, through outward power. Now we see the, the church at Smyrna, for example, receiving persecution from those who say that they are Jews, but who are not. And these Jews were slandering the Christians. These unbelieving Jews would go to Roman officials and slander the Christians so that they would be persecuted at the hands of the empire. And this is precisely what the unbelieving Jews did to Jesus. They slandered him before a Roman official so that he would be persecuted unto death. And so Smyrna was experiencing Uh, what they were experiencing was was very similar to the experience of their very own Lord and Savior, which is why Christ says to the church at Smyrna not to fear what they are about to suffer. He knows what they are going through, and he has already overcome and is calling them to overcome through him. You see, some of them were going to experience tribulation in the form of being thrown into prison as they awaited trial. And they may very well face death after their trial. And so the Lord tells them to be faithful, be faithful to Christ, even unto death. That is, even if the persecution they receive leads to death. And so there we see one form of tribulation, namely persecution. We also see the churches experiencing tribulation in the form of deception. Sometimes rather than force, the dragon will attempt to deceive people into worshiping something other than God. 
And he does this through the false prophet. The strategy here is to blind people from seeing the truth. Sin, of course, has affected our knowledge and it blinds us to the truth. And so the false prophet will deceive us, sometimes in very subtle ways, into worshiping idols and to blind us from our idolatry. And the church will face deception, of course, both from the inside and from the outside. And from the inside, it will come from false teachers, wolves in sheep's clothing. The church at Ephesus faced this type of deception from the false prophet. They had dealt with some who called themselves apostles, but who were not. Ephesus had done well in seeing through all of these lies, and the Lord commends them for this. However, when successful against deception by the false prophet in spiritual warfare, other temptations will arise. You see, success in fighting against false doctrine often causes people to mistrust others. And it's difficult to love those you don't trust. You see, doctrinal precision is necessary for the church to fight against the false prophet, but not at the expense of love. We must be lovingly militant for the truth. We must fight, but we must fight with love. Now, oftentimes the beast and the false prophet work together. In other words, deception and persecution go hand in hand. The false prophet will oftentimes use propaganda to promote the beast. And the church at Philadelphia experienced this when the unbelieving Jews tried to convince them that only they had the keys to the kingdom of God. But the unbelieving Jews were of their father, the devil, the serpent. And so when the Christians would not go and worship with the false uh, worship that what was false, what they were teaching that was false there in the synagogues of Satan, they would turn them over to the beast to have the Christians persecuted. And the unbelieving Jews in Rome often worked hand in hand in this way, which is why at Christ's crucifixion, the Jews even then proclaimed, we have no king but Caesar. You see them working together hand in hand. Now, the last form of tribulation is seduction, which comes from the harlot Babylon, the mother of all prostitutes. She is the city of man, the city that follows after the beast, the city of this world, who seduces the church or attempts to seduce the church into immorality. And the two churches who receive no commendation at all, but only rebuke of the seven, are asphyxiated by the worldly seductions of the harlot community. I don't know if you noticed that when we read through them. 
But the two who received no commendation whatsoever, only rebuke, were the churches who experienced the seduction the most. Both Sardis and Laodicea's main problems were the seductions of this world. Laodicea, for example, was a wealthy community which seduced the church into a pursuit of material goods and ultimately to seek after a lifestyle of comfort. And because of their pursuits in these things, they failed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Therefore, they became useless to Christ and he desired to spit them out of his mouth. Similar to Laodicea, Sardis had been known as a wealthy community as well. Its riches were legendary, being linked with King Midas and his golden touch, as well as with the famous wealth of King Croesus, who built what he thought was an impenetrable fortress to protect his wealth and his reign. However, his trust in that fortress proved to be a misplaced security when it was sacked at the hands of Cyrus, the king of Persia. Like Croesus, the, the Sardians apparently had a misplaced trust in their worldly goods, which caused them to be asleep with regard to the spiritual warfare that was going on all around them. And that's what the seduction of this world can produce in the church, an unawareness of the spiritual dangers that we face. Now, very much related to that is the manner in which seduction is often employed with deception. You see, seduction can blind you from seeing the truth. For example, the church at Thyatira had tolerated that woman Jezebel. Now, who is she? Well, she's the harlot Babylon, the prostitute, the unfaithful city. And Christ says to Thyatira that Jezebel calls herself a prophetess who teaches and seduces the church to commit sexual immorality. You see how deception, false teaching, goes hand in hand here with seduction. She deceives people into thinking that she is a prophet from God, and she does so in order to teach people immoral practices. The same was true of the church at Pergamum. And in the message to them, you can see more clearly than any of the other messages how the beast, the false prophet, and the harlot Babylon all worked together. This church held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. There is the deception of the false prophet. And their teaching, the teaching of the Nicolaitans, led people into sexual immorality and idolatry. There's the seduction that came from the deception. And this immorality was practiced at the trade guild festivals, which the Christians felt economically pressured to attend, lest their means of providing for themselves were taken away by the empire. There's the persecution. Perhaps even leading to death if they did not worship the emperor. And beloved, we speak of these things, we, we look and read about these things, 
And we come to see that this is what the church faces to greater and lesser degrees until Christ returns bodily to take us all to be with him in the promised land of heaven. And the book of Revelation will explain all of this over and over again until it closes with the vision of the new heavens and the new earth. So long as we remain on this side of heaven, that is, so long as we remain in the wilderness of this world, Satan will persecute through the beast. You see, the beast wants you to worship him and not Christ. And the beast may come in the form of a person, an institution, an employer, or a state power. Anything that uses fear to gain your ultimate commitments. Now persecution is certainly not desired in in many ways. But interestingly of the seven churches, the two who appear to be doing the best, who received not any rebukes from the Lord, were the ones who were receiving persecution more so than deception or seduction. And this actually makes sense because persecution actually aids in refining the church. It removes those who are not true because they do not remain faithful out of the fear of persecution. But furthermore, persecution also aids the church in spreading her message. Tertullian, a second century theologian, put it this way. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Meaning, persecution forces the church to dig underground, which results in spreading out and springing up in other parts of the world. And so persecution may be painful and even intimidate some right out of the church, but it can nevertheless be advantageous in the ways just mentioned. However, not only does the dragon persecute through beastly powers, but he also deceives through the false prophet. You see, fear doesn't work against everyone. Of course, it will never work ultimately on the elect. But even beyond the elect, some are not intimidated by power and force. Their weakness, on the other hand, may be discernment. And so the false prophet deceives in order to turn them from the truth. And this is often done subtly. Enough of the truth is there to make things seem right. But it's a perversion of the truth. Enough to lead you astray. And so the false prophet is a propagandist for the beast. He can come in the form of mass media, through educational institutions, social movements, or in other forms. False prophet, you see, doesn't want you to fear the beast, but to fear what life would be like without the beast there to protect you and save you from all your earthly fears, from all earthly harms. And so the false prophet will actually portray the beast as a Messiah who has the power to save. To save you from all of your earthly troubles. Whether they be social, medical, economic, moral, and so forth. 
Now, people may not fall down literally to worship an institution or a state power or whatever form the beast may take, but they will make it an idol, thinking that it will remedy all their earthly problems. I have indeed seen many people treat the state as the world's savior. Now, the dragon will also use the false prophet to beautify the community who worships the beast. In other words, the false prophet will deceive you into thinking that the harlot Babylon is this beautiful woman. And this will make you covet her wealth, her luxury, all her fame, all her beauty, all her pleasure, all her apparent comforts. And in this way, the false prophet, together with the harlot Babylon, will seek to lure you away from Christ. Saying, don't follow him. That's a life defined by the cross. That's a life of suffering, a life of self-denial. Live a life of comfort and ease, a life of pleasure and power. Beloved, this is the enemy we face. This is the wilderness time of tribulation. It is a time of testing for the church. It is a time where our Savior is humbling us and teaching us to live not by bread alone, not by the things of this world, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Just as Israel needed to hear every word from the mouth of God, just as the church in John's day needed to hear the words of Christ, so also the church today must heed what the Spirit says to the churches through Christ our Lord. We must turn to Christ's word and Holy Scripture so that the Spirit may continually change our hearts and open our eyes to the truth of the gospel and so cause us to live as faithful witnesses of Christ. Like Ephesus, our eyes of faith need to be open to the one who walks amongst the seven lampstands. For he is present with and tends to his church as he leads her to the promised land. Like Smyrna, we must look to the one who is the first and the last who died and came to life. For he is the sovereign one, the one who laid down his life to save his sheep and who was raised for our justification. Like Pergamum, we must listen to the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword for he will bring judgment. And put to death all of his and our enemies. Like Thyatira we must hear the words of him who has eyes like a flame of fire. For he alone can search hearts and minds. And to the one who has feet like burnished bronze. For as bronze is refined by fire so Christ overcame when he was tested by the fires of affliction. Like Sardis, we must hear him who has the seven spirits of God, for he alone is the life-giving spirit. Like Philadelphia, we must look to the one who has the keys of David, for he alone can open the doors of God's kingdom to those 
whom he calls. And like Laodicea, we must listen to the one who is the beginning of God's new creation. For in him alone can we become new creations. And on the last day, receive resurrected bodies like his. Beloved, this is the one, the only one to whom we must listen. The one who is the word of God. By which we live, by which we are nourished. He is everything that a weak, poor church needs as she walks on her heaven-bound journey through the wilderness to meet her bridegroom face to face. In him, though we may be weak, we are strong. To him be all praise and glory now and forevermore. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ our Savior who died and rose again and who now rules over all things to the church who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and we pray, O God, that though our enemy may appear very strong and mighty we pray that we might see how he is already been defeated through the work of Christ our Savior. And so may we live as those who are victors, overcoming the temptations, the seductions, the, the deception and persecution that may come our way. And may we look to Christ, following after him, knowing that he has opened the way, a living way to enter into heaven with you. May we turn to no other but to Jesus Christ our Lord. In his name we pray. Amen.